I'm trying to brainstorm ways to make auditing sound exciting and engaging. We're going to talk about auditing tonight, and it's going to be a blast. We're going to talk about addition and subtraction and getting into the numbers, and you're going to love it. Closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson, Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com, and your iHeartRadio app, two ways to stream the program. We're here 9 to 11 weeknights. Appreciate you tuning in. You can catch up on past shows by doing a search for Closing Argument in your iHeartRadio app. And our channel will pop right up there for you. 651-989-5855 is the number to join us throughout the evening tonight. Brad Omland taking those calls and producing the show. In studio, we have with us tonight very special guest, Pam Myra, who is running for state auditor under the Minnesota Republican Party label. Welcome to the program, Pam. Wonderful. Thank you. I so appreciate your having me on. Yeah, absolutely. Appreciate you coming in. So, I mean, my first question, I think what we need to establish right up front, and usually, you know, when I have people in who are running for office, I, I don't have to to go over what the office even is or what it does and why it's important. Sure. But in this case, I think we do. In this case, sure. the, in the in the the noise of things that are taking place this election year with, you know, two U.S. Senate seats yes. on the ballot and the, the midterm elections in the context of Trump's first term, there's so much competing for people's attention what does the state auditor do and why should people be paying attention to the state auditor's race this year the state auditor's office actually is super important it's really a very important position the state auditor sets the tone and leads the office for financial audits and performance reviews uh, oversight over our tax dollars and quite honestly I think people really care about it they just don't know that they care about it when I served in the legislature in 2012 and 2013 I chief authored two bills on government transparency and those two bills were unanimously passed in the house and signed into law by the governor and I would go door knocking and people would actually come out of their houses and give me hugs because they were so appreciative of being able to have transparency in how their dollars were being used. And so I think really people care. They get it they, that uh, when their tax dollars are being used effectively and as they were intended to, there are more dollars for things like uh, road repairs or reducing the size of their child's classroom, uh, the number of students in their child's classroom or uh Funding um, uh, government pensions or low-income housing, those kind of things. So the w- implied in that is that the state auditor is involved in going after things like what waste, fraud, abuse, or make sure that there isn't uh, a, a malfeasance in various state agencies. It, that is not the main objective. Okay. But when audits are being done and performance reviews are being done, those things come up. Fair enough. So now I have, having been involved in the Republican Party for uh, a handful of years, I recall past auditor candidates. Sure. I know that this is one of the statewide races, one of the constitutional offices yes, uh, here in, in the state of Minnesota for which both parties endorse candidates that run alongside you know, candidates running for governor, alongside candidates running for U.S. Senate and what have you. 
And historically, the Democratic Party has had really a chokehold on these constitutional offices for quite some time, including state auditor. And that's been a problem. We can get into that, the, the, the problem of Democratic control of these offices. But before we get into that, I want to talk about the notion of qualification because you have you have a background aside from having been a a state representative uh, and having been a a prior gubernatorial running mate um, in the Republican Party. You actually have a background that's very directly suited to this job. Yes, I do. You you, uh, used to be an auditor used to work for an auditing firm tell us a little bit about that back sure well actually i'm a certified public accountant and i have an active license i'm a former audit manager at kpmg it's the one of the largest firms in the world and i i served as an audit manager so i am an auditor running for the auditor position and as i said earlier i served in the legislature from the beginning of of 2010 through the beginning of 2015 and chief authored uh, legislation on government transparency and again that that office of state auditors all about accountability and transparency in the use of our tax dollars so the the reason why i think it's important to note that those qualifications on your part is that you know, at face value, people may be inclined to think, well, of course you, you're qualified because you're running. Right. Why, why would you run to do something that you don't have qualifications right. for? And yet, this is actually an anomaly. For you to be as qualified as you are yes. to be an auditor is unusual because this is, this is an, th- th- there's no constitutional requirement that you have the background that you have in order to run for this office. Literally anybody can file. Anybody can file a taxi cab driver, a junior high math teacher, a biology major. Yeah. Yeah, you just provided the multiple choice list of who your opponent, (laughs) (laughs) the background your opponent may have. Right. And so, you know, this is noteworthy that, that you're actually approaching this as an applicant for a job would with a resume that's suited to the the specific role. If uh, elected state auditor, are there specific issues that uh, you will be focusing on uh, after the election? There is something that I will be focusing on uh, particularly of concern to me is I was asked so many times to run for this position because of those qualifications and and uh, this last fall I I sat down and actually I read Minnesota statute there's about 25 pages and I, as I was reading it I started to get really mad and I wasn't getting mad as a potential candidate or even a CPA I was getting mad as a taxpayer and um, it's really outdated and uh, it hasn't kept up. And so my one of my important focuses will be on updating our statute to protect and have better oversight of our, our tax dollars uh, for taxpayers in Minnesota. Um, I was just recently reading a report issued by our current state auditor. She issued it in February of uh, 2018 on single audits. That is a type of audit that's done on uh, federal grant money. And I was just stunned to see that she was referencing a memorandum of understanding that dates back to 1983. That's 35 years ago. And uh, one of the things that we have in our profession is that these 
kind of letters and memorandum need to be updated each right. year, you know, right, right, right. not be 35 years old. I sure. don't think any of the people who signed that memorandum of understanding 35 years old, uh, 35 years ago are probably even around anymore, right. you know, so, uh, updating, um, the whole area, the whole area and responsibilities of state auditor will be a number one priority. Yeah, it sounds very similar that your concerns over this office to, you know, we've had Doug Wardlow in here a couple of times. He's the Min GOP candidate running for attorney general. And in both cases, you're, you seem to be dealing with specialized professional offices that are not being run in a professional manner to actually accomplish what they were designed to achieve. Um, one of the, the issues that I know, uh, I've heard bits and pieces about, but don't have all the details of is there's been this conflict between the state auditor's office and counties who yes. have, have wanted to engage, as I understand it, have wanted to engage in certain auditing activities independently. What can you tell us about a, a lawsuit that's been ongoing against three Minnesota counties by the current state auditor? Sure. I'd happy to give a little bit of the backstory too. back in 2015, the, Democrat Senate, the Republican House, and a Democrat governor uh, passed a bill, and it was signed into law, that counties would be able to have the choice, have the flexibility to have a public accounting firm or the state auditor do their financial audit. The current state auditor took it to three different levels, and in April of this year, it was decided, affirmed, by the Minnesota Supreme Court that what the legislature had done and the governor had signed was constitutional. And what that that law allowed for is that counties are going to be able to, again, decide whether they have a public accounting firm do their uh, financial audit or the state auditor. And that is not so radical because cities have had that choice for a long time. And so cities already had it. Now counties can have it as well. I, I would not, I would not revisit that uh, particular bill. I think it's a good bill, and it allows for more independence and competition. And I think in the long run, it will be better for the taxpayer. It's it's particularly interesting because it it seems as though you know for the for the state auditor to sue counties for exercising their rights under a newly minted law. Yes, seems pretty dubious, just like on legal grounds, that you would even. I mean, clearly the legislative intent is what it is, and it's fresh in, in the minds of the people who wrote it and, and signed it. And, and so the only potential motive, it's not as though there's some sort of question as to how to interpret this. The interpretation is clear. The only potential motive, as I see it, is you feel threatened. You feel as right. though you're, the, the scope of your authority is being challenged. Right. Her domain, yeah. her territory was being challenged. Talk a little bit about what it's been like uh, for for these offices, these statewide offices, uh, whether it's attorney general, or state auditor, to be under DFL control for as long as they have. You know, what are, what are some of the the issues that have uh, manifest as a result of one party control, and and what could voters look forward to if they were willing to shake things up? Well, this particular position of state auditor has been held by the Democrats, uh, by Rebecca Otto for the last three terms, almost going on 12 years now. 
before that was a Republican. And I mean, it has switched back and forth. Okay. So it's not quite as um, one party as uh, AG, right. you know, Attorney General. That has been in Democrat hands for almost 50 years. Right. Uh, the state auditors gone back and forth. I think we have a really good chance at victory this fall. It is an open seat. And then again, with my qualifications, uh, I think we have a really good shot at it. And the, the response I'm getting out in the public has just been phenomenal, quite honestly. I've, I have been loving campaigning because of the feedback and the response of individuals, you know, just sharing with people uh, about my candidacy and even having people say, well, I'm a strong Democrat. And then after just a short amount of talk, you know, they're they're on my side and saying, you know, promising they're voting for me. So it's been really good. Well, and one of the things I'm aware of about you personally is that you're well known for being a, a committed uh, worker when it comes to campaigning and getting out there and meeting people and convincing them to vote for you. So uh, hopefully that will will pan out in terms of uh, the campaign going on later in these final few weeks. We're, we're right up against it now. Yes, I mean, November is right around the corner. 651-989-5855 is the number to join us if you have comments or questions for Pam Myra, the MNGOP candidate for state auditor my name is walter hudson closing argument twin cities news talk am 1130 1035 fm twin cities news talk.com pam myra in studio with us tonight candidate for state auditor something you should care about in the midst of everything else that's going on this election year, you know, important midterm election, two U.S. Senate seats on the ballot, lots of important stuff going on. We're going to decide who the next governor is of the state of Minnesota. In the midst of all that, make sure you carve out some attention to give to the state auditor's race. It is important. We're finding out why with Pam Myra in studio tonight. Closing argument, my name is Walter Hudson. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, 651-989. Five eight five five. So, state auditor is an elected position, obviously. Yes, it is. But there is some conversation as to whether or not that's the way things ought to stay. It's been suggested that perhaps it would be better for the office and for the work that the office does if this was not an elected position, if it was, say, appointed by the governor. What say you? What say I? Well... I believe that it should be based on the voters. The voters should have the say. And the state auditor should be responsible and accountable to the voters. I would strongly uh, be against uh, the governor appointing uh, the state auditor from the standpoint that you'd end up in a situation where the people aren't being represented. I think it'd become more political, quite honestly. Hmm. Uh, Others have suggested that the legislative auditor should kind of take over. But just listen to the name, legislative auditor. The legislative auditor is at the direction, directive of the legislature. So whoever's in power in the legislature basically, you know, can control the legislative auditor. The state auditor should be, again, accountable to the people of Minnesota. And so I'm offering them a choice of having somebody who has the credentials, who is a certified public accountant, 
uh, with an active license and a former audit manager who's actually been an auditor. Uh, my appoint, uh, my uh, opponent uh, has been talking about how, you know, she wants to be Minnesota's bean counter. Quite honestly, counting is not a really important skill set for the auditor. Actually, you know, understanding when things don't add up right. is more important for an auditor. So, um, Do you get the sense, and I, I don't want to spend too much time talking about your opponent, but Sure. Who, who's I, I'll confess I don't even know the name okay. I don't I don't even know who the person is, but you know be that as it may, do you get the sense in some of the the that rhetoric of I'm going to be a bean counter or what have you that there there isn't necessarily an interest in doing the job of auditing that perhaps there is it possible to politicize the position of state auditor that's basically the question I'm getting after. Actually, that has happened. And okay. I mean, that's what is going on in the state auditor's office. It has been political. It has been partisan. And it shouldn't be. Think about the, the middle in, uh, letter in CPA. The P does not stand for political. It doesn't stand for party or partisan mm-hmm. or all of that. It stands for public. As a certified public accountant, the public is most important to me, serving the public. And unfortunately... Uh, the office has been used in the past uh, to promote uh, political things, yeah, political which, issues. Which you wouldn't think that that's, like, just intrinsically, it, it, you wouldn't think that's even possible with something that's a highly technical office like State Auditor. What are some examples you can provide in terms of, of how the office has been misused in that way? Well, it's been used as a soapbox. You know, it, it is a constitutional office. Mm-hmm. Very important. You know, it's elected once every four years. And so uh, the person in the position has gotten on the soapbox and uh, promoted their particular political views. Right. You know, and they, the office has also been uh, a, a springboard for governor. Right. You know, and so um, and my intent is to go in there and really work on behalf of the taxpayer to have better oversight of our tax dollars. Yeah. Yeah, it, it definitely seems as though, and, and again, I'm reminded of the attorney general's race and that in, in that position as well is often has been treated as though it's just kind of like a green room for the next governor's race of, you know, this is where I'm going to hang out and build my case to the people that I would make a good governor someday right. rather than actually making a good faith, sincere effort to do the job that you were elected to do in this case, uh, performing as state auditor. Now we talked earlier about the, the ability that the legislator has or legislature has given counties to be able to decide whether or not they're going to have the state auditor's office perform their auditing for them or uh, farm it out to an accounting firm. What do you make of the notion that some have floated of taking that even a step further and just getting rid of the state auditor's position altogether? Why do we even need to have a state auditor in the first place? Because, as the uh, Minnesota Supreme Court affirmed this last April, is that the state auditor has a very important responsibility of oversight. And if it isn't in doing those audits, it's having that oversight over those public accounting firms to make sure that they are doing those audits appropriately. And I take that responsibility very seriously. There are standards that need to be followed. There's generally accepted government auditing standards that need to be followed. They're very specific. They're knowable. And they, they we can go through and see that those are being followed or they're not. And again, ultimately, it's for the benefit of the taxpayer that our tax dollars are being used effectively 
and as they were intended according to the law. And when they are being used effectively according to law, then there is, there's more money for, uh, for those other things that we want for our community and for our families. We've been talking with Pam Myra, Republican candidate for state auditor here in Minnesota. How can people learn more about your campaign? And uh, it's my understanding that you have uh, an event coming up that folks can participate yes. in. Yes. People can learn more about my campaign by going to my website, pamforauditor.com. That's pamforauditor.com. They can follow me on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at pamforauditor. That was at Pam for Auditor. I do have an event coming up on September the 19th. That's Wednesday of this next week. And people can learn more about that by going to at Pam for Auditor on Facebook and, and getting the details. Fantastic. Appreciate you coming in tonight and uh, sharing about your campaign. And we wish you the best of luck moving forward. Thank you so much, Walter. Closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson, 651-989-5855. We'll get into some news and hijinks, national and local, when we return TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com. So last night, we touched upon this story regarding the chief of police down in Madison Lake who has come under fire for a video that he put out on social media from a trip he was taking to Yellowstone. And listen, I mean, the video was dumb, right? Like, it was, it was a stupid idea for somebody who holds a, a public position to go on Facebook or whatever. I, I, it was a Facebook post, I guess, and stream a video complaining about the fact that there are foreign language speaking people around him at a major tourist attraction. Like, first of all, how is that even, how is that even noteworthy that really people from other countries go to the hotspots in the United States when they come to visit and they might speak their own language amongst themselves when they're there. Tell me more. How strange, how unusual. And so he puts up this, this Facebook video and he, you know, I haven't watched the thing, but from reading the accounts, apparently he lets you hear all of the, the muckety muck that's taking place around him. And then he says something to the effect of, it sounds like blah, 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 blah. And then he finishes it off with, wake up, America, which I don't know what that actually means. I don't know what you're supposed to wake up and do, how you're supposed to be motivated by this. Wake up and order Rosetta Stone so that you can understand what people are talking about or what the deal is. But at any rate, so he's come under fire for this, primarily from the left, with calls for his removal and what have you. And the, the point that I was trying to get after last night and you know brad and i kind of had different takes on this or we're coming at it from different angles at the very least the point that i was trying to focus on was the amount and intensity of reaction that these types of incidents foster or or uh, become catalysts for it's not that there isn't something there to criticize. I mean, I'm sitting here criticizing it, right? The, the post was stupid. He shouldn't have made it. It was inappropriate. It was unprofessional. It was probably racist to a certain degree. But at the end of all that, like setting all of that aside or accounting for all of that, I'm still left with the question of uh, why should I be particularly animated? I'm not saying you shouldn't care at all. I'm not saying it isn't worth reading the story and being like, huh, yeah, you shouldn't have done that. Like, that, by all means, come to that judgment. 
But for it to become like a cause, something that you're going to expend a significant amount of time, stress, and energy reflecting upon, there's a dysfunction that seems to be present in our society right now, particularly when it comes to anything that could be remotely construed as bigoted or racist or sexist or anti-this or anti-that. Any any kind of potential bias expressed by a person, particularly a person in any sort of position of prominence. Now, a chief of police, to Brad's point last night, and this was a valid point, I'm glad he raised it, a chief of police is actually somebody who we should be concerned about because of the civil authority with which he's vested. He has the ability to actually take his bias and translate that into rights-violating action sanctioned by the state. And so that is problematic and is deserving of a higher level of scrutiny than, say, somebody like Roseanne Barr, right, for instance. Be that as it may, we, we have this scenario where regardless of whether or not the person holds any sort of civil authority, you can't say anything nowadays that can even be construed as being outside the very limited scope of what's considered acceptable by the hard left without triggering this massive outrage storm that will be satisfied by nothing less than your complete social destruction, like you being fired, you being castigated, disassociated with, losing your advertisers if you have any, you know, having your church excommunicate you or whatever the case may be, like complete and utter ex- social banishment is what is called for apparently now. Anytime somebody says anything that can be remotely construed as outside the range of the very limited social justice perspective that's offered by the hard left. Matt Walsh has a piece that digs into this and references another even more recent and more prominent national outrage that's apparently ongoing right now involving Norm McDonald. Now, you know, Norm McDonald, if you have any familiarity with him whatsoever, not exactly known for his sensitivity, not exactly known for, for as somebody whose comedy is rooted in compassion and sympathy. He's an irreverent comic. He's all but an insult comic. I mean, that's what he does. You know, he, t- he, ta- he talks rough, gruff, one of the guys, the type of talk you would expect to hear at the bar, right? That's his style. That's who he is. But that doesn't, you, you can't do that nowadays. Matt Walsh writing at the Daily Wire. The pitchfork mob has now set its sights on comedian Norm McDonald. As McDonald is known for being irreverent and politically incorrect, it was only a matter of time before he had his turn. His appearance on The Tonight Show was canceled last night amid outcry over comments that allegedly minimized sexual assault and racism. Most of the outrage seems to be centered around two snippets from an interview with The Hollywood Reporter. I'll show you the quotes, but prepare yourself. These words and opinions articulated by a comedian were apparently enough to cause several Tonight Show producers to break down in tears. Here's what Norm MacDonald tweeted. I'm happy the Me Too movement has slowed down a little bit. It used to be 100 women can say or can't be lying, and then it became one woman can't lie, and that became all, I believe, all women. And then you're like, what? Like that? Chris Hardwick guy, I really thought, got the blunt end of the stick there. And then there was this. He said in an interview, 
Well, Louie, CK, and Roseanne Barr are two people I know, and Roseanne was so broken up that I got Louie to call her, even though Roseanne was very hard on Louie before that, but she was just so broken and just crying constantly. There are very few people that have gone through what they have, losing everything in a day. Of course, people will go, what about the victims? But you know what? The victims didn't have to go through that. So these were the two comments made by Norm MacDonald. Now, you, you know, not on their face, at least from my reading, not particularly provocative, and Matt Walsh agrees. He, he writes, even if he was horribly wrong on both counts here, the outrage would still be absurd. He is just giving his opinion. It used to be possible for someone to give an opinion, even an unpopular one, even a wrong one, without it becoming a national crisis. But that is not how things work anymore. Now, if you commit the crime of giving a unique perspective in public, People will seize hold of it and sift through it looking for one or two of the most controversial sentences. Then they will divorce those sentences from their context, searching desperately for the most uncharitable interpretation. There is no attempt to understand the actual point of what was said. There is no engagement or discourse or debate. Speech is treated like a game with arbitrary rules, and whoever breaks the rules will be punished regardless of intent. That is why there is no use in pointing out, but I will point out, that Norm MacDonald is not actually wrong. His point is eminently reasonable and perfectly clear. Yes, the prevailing attitude in the Me Too movement is that accusers never lie. And yes, it has created a dangerous environment where guys like Chris Hardwick can have their rep uh, reputations ruined based on the anonymous accusations of one person. Yes, it's also true that Roseanne and Louis C.K. lost everything in a day. And yes, it's reasonable for a close friend like Norm MacDonald to feel some compassion for them. And he continues writing at the Daily Wire, that being Matt Walsh. And, you know, th this is what I was trying to get after last night in reference to the Madison Lake police chief. You know, the, and in his case, unlike Norm MacDonald, like the, the, the process that Matt Walsh articulates here of taking words and sifting them out of context and spinning them to give the most uncharitable interpretation possible. In the case of the Madison Lake police chief, what he said actually was problematic. But even so, the, the, the notion that it's a stop the presses moment and that we need, to, we need to push the pause button on life and focus like a laser beam on this crime against humanity that is a guy not liking foreign languages on his vacation. It's, you get to a point where the, the prescribed reaction, the prescribed solution is significantly worse than the problem. Is it a problem that a chief of police may have some racist attitudes? Yes, that is a problem. That is something that should properly be addressed. Absolutely. You know what a bigger problem is? A significantly bigger problem what Matt Walsh articulates here, this development in the culture whereby we can't even have conversations anymore. We can't even have good faith, open dialogue about literally anything without people fearing for not just their reputations, but their professional livelihood, their capacity to pursue happiness at any level. We are increasingly living it. And at this point, it's largely a enforced through culture. It's enforced through institutions. But we're getting to the point where, you know, as this becomes more normal, it's only a matter of time before it becomes 
legislate it, before it becomes a matter of policy. And you could make the argument in a variety of different ways that it already has when you look at things like public accommodation and anti-discrimination law. 651-989-5855. Closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, com. So it just so happens, you know, we spent the last segment talking about how the culture is devolving to a point where you can't say anything without having your your means to pursue your values taken away from you. Turns out Brandon Straka, who you may recall as the founder for the walkaway movement, has just been banned from Facebook. Now, this is a guy who, you know, a year ago was a liberal Democrat. And since he started to question, I I highly recommend, I listened to it this morning, the most recent episode of the Kip and Max Save the World. You can find it at kipandmax.com. Max Reimer interviewed Brandon Straka. They had him on uh, the podcast. And he tells his story of the whole process of how he, you know, it wasn't like overnight. It wasn't like one day he's a Democrat and one day he's a liberal and the next day he's making videos telling everybody to walk away. It was a process of growth and discovery that took place over time. And integral to that process was persecution from day one. From the moment that he, forget about having, you know, saying he's a conservative or saying he's walking away from liberalism or the Democratic Party. From the moment he called into question whether or not the premises offered by the left were true. You know, one of the examples he provides is, you know, you remember during the 2016 campaign, people got on Donald Trump about supposedly mocking that disabled reporter. You know, how many times did we see embedded in political ads or shared on on the news or or talking heads rending robes and gnashing teeth about, oh, Donald Trump's so horrible because he's mocking a disabled reporter. Well, as it turns out, that that behavior that Trump was engaged in, that way of talking about another person of describing how they were is something that Trump has done repeatedly over the entire course of his life. And it has never been in reference to a disability. It has always been in reference to somebody trying to, to uh, dismiss an accusation against them or somebody being caught having done something wrong or being caught being wrong about something. That's always, and somebody had, patched together a montage of all these moments in Trump's past where he had exhibited that exact same gesticulation in talking about somebody. And it was always in reference to them being caught lying or them being caught being wrong or whatever. It had nothing whatsoever to do with a disability. And Brandon Straka saw this and all he did was go to his friends and say, Hey, have you seen this? Hey, have you, do do you realize that, we might be wrong about this, that maybe Donald Trump wasn't mocking a disabled reporter. And for that alone, he started to lose friends. He started to get unfriended. He started to get blocked. He started to have people walk away from him. This is the environment in which we live. And now the guy's been banned from Facebook. Now, what do you think his crime was? What do you think his big, his big violation of Facebook terms of use was? Facebook just banned me. This is his tweet from today. Facebook just banned me as I'm planning the walkaway march on Washington. I have been banned from posting leading up to the march. This is devastating for our ability to reach people. 
I was banned for mentioning my interview with Alex Jones. Can anybody help? He was banned for mentioning InfoWars, for mentioning Alex Jones. This is what we've come to. Not only are you gonna are you gonna kick off, are you gonna deplatform Alex Jones and InfoWars, you're now going to start deplatforming people who, you know, might be a little dangerous because maybe they're attached to a movement that's gaining steam, you know, even as you try to even as the left tries to undermine and downplay and discredit the walkaway movement, claiming that it's all a bunch of Russian bots and that it's not real people and this isn't a real thing. At the same time, they're obviously terrified of it because they're utilizing the power that they've accumulated in their various institutions to attack Brandon Straka, who's just a guy that just he's he's not he's not leading a 501c3. He's not a member of some, you know, massive powerful lobbying organization. He's not a candidate for office. He doesn't hold any public office currently. He's he's not really a public figure to any degree more than just having a social media following. He doesn't even have a check mark on Twitter. Right. But he's but he's viewed as dangerous, so we've got to deplatform him. This is the new the new political persecution. McCarthyism has nothing on this. McCarthyism has nothing on the capacity of of these big tech institutions to be able to determine that they are going to deplatform people with whom they politically disagree. And the question of whether or not they have the right is beside the point. It, it frankly is completely beside the point. I'm not interested in, in debating whether or not they have the right to do it because there is no debate. Of course they do. I believe in private property. I believe in consensual relationships, unlike, ironically, Facebook and Twitter, right? Unlike, ironically, the entire political left. I believe in those things. Be that as it may, it remains morally wrong, morally wrong to selectively silence people, to selectively get in in between people's consensual relationships based on nothing more than your political disagreement with them. You don't get to you don't get to portray yourself as being a platform for the exchange, the free exchange of ideas, for the free exchange of community, and engage in that type of behavior. The the response that Facebook and Twitter and platforms that are and tech companies that are engaged in similar behavior need to start hearing from us is that we we're gonna first of all, yeah, as as Max says on his show and has said here when he's filled in, we need to start coming up with our own stuff. Some entrepreneurs, some tech people need to start coming together on the not even I'm not even gonna say the conservative side, the normal side, the rational side, the sane side. The American side need to come together and start building alternatives to these platforms with the commitment that, hey, this is this is truly a public square. We're not going to we're not going to silence you. We're not going to take efforts to to interfere with the relationships that you want to engage in and that other people want to engage in with you. We're truly going to be an open platform that needs to happen. And on top of that. We need to collectively reject the type of control that these these current established institutions are trying to impose upon us. 651-989-5855, TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com. If the roles were reversed, you know, we always have to engage in the issue on the other foot 
exercises. But, you know, the utility, the reason why we so often do it is because the utility is quite obvious. You know, Brandon Straka, the founder of the walkaway movement, an online social media hashtag Twitter thing, whereby all he did was, you know, if you're not familiar with walkaway, this guy, Brandon Straka, happens to be gay. He put out a video testimonial describing his own political history. He used to be a liberal. He used to be a Democrat. And he's walking away from that on account of what he sees having developed in recent years in terms of the character of the left, the the anti-democratic, anti-thought, anti-freedom, advocacy for violence, and what have you. He put out a video to that effect saying, I'm walking away and you should too. You should post your testimony, encouraging other people to share their testimonials as to you know why they've walked away from the left, walked away from the Democratic Party, and encouraging conservatives to post their stories as to why they're conservative. And he's developed a movement around this on social media. And apparently they're planning a march on Washington that's supposed to take place. And he was just banned from Facebook. Why? What did he do? What do you think he did? All I did was reference, all I did was link to or mention that he had an interview with Alex Jones talking about his march on Washington, the walkway march on Washington. Because he mentioned Alex Jones, he was banned from Facebook. Now, I want you to imagine, because we don't, we don't do this. By we, I mean, of course, I mean the right, but I also mean America. I mean normal human beings. People, people who have any degree of Western value whatsoever, we don't do this in the United States of America. We don't shut people down for saying things with which we disagree. And imagine if we did. Imagine if at the height of the, the effort in, I, I believe it was 2012, to pass a constitutional amendment that would have codified that marriage is between a man and a woman in the state of Minnesota. Imagine if in that context, Facebook, and I know this is going to take a high degree of imagination to imagine that this is, is even possible, but just imagine it for the sake of argument. Facebook started deplatforming homosexuals, started deplatforming advocates for same-sex marriage and saying, you know what, we just this isn't something we agree with. It's not something that we want to have on our site, and so we're not going to let these people have the relationships that they've consented to with others who are on their friends list and who are following their pages and what have you. What would the reaction be? I mean, it doesn't even need to be said, right? It would be gnashing of teeth. It would be rending of robes. You know, Imagine if you had left-wing organizations, moveon.org or Planned Parenthood, or, you know, Alliance for a Better Minnesota started losing their, started being deplatformed, losing their capacity to, to link, to share, to post, to organize on social media. And the reason cited was, well, we don't like the people you hang around with. We don't like your associations. We don't like your ideas. We don't like what you stand for. So you don't get to have a Facebook page or a Twitter account anymore. Suddenly you would say there, there would be this new momentum behind the First Amendment on the left. They would suddenly rediscover the concept of free expression, right? You know, you see this happen. Every time there's a shift in power, the party out of power rediscovers all the constitutional rights and and the uh, cultural, tangential uh, expressions of those rights. They rediscover it when they're in the minority. 
They forget about it when they get the power again, but when they're in a minority, suddenly they're like, oh yeah, freedom of speech, oh yeah, freedom of expression. This is what would happen. But the thing is, is that those of us in, in normal life on the right, in the normal American cultural sphere, would never even contemplate deplatforming people with whom we disagree. It would never even occur to us that, you know what we should do? We should shut down the Twitter account of our political opposition. We should shut down the Facebook page of somebody who, you know, believes in, of an SEIU leader or of Alliance for a Better Minnesota, right? We should keep them from being able to organize. It would never even occur to us to do something like that. Only the left, only the left believes in shutting their opposition down. Now, here's the point that I want to hammer home on this. The reason why they deplatform, the reason why they believe in shutting people down, it's because in their heart of hearts, they know, and through deplatforming, they are publicly expressing that they cannot win arguments. They cannot win. On a level playing field, in an open marketplace of ideas, when the merits of what they believe are actually compared to the merits of the other side, to the merits of our side, to the merits of America as such, when their ideas are actually considered out in the open and weighed, they are found wanting. They cannot survive in the face of competition. And so their only option is to shut it down. You see it manifest in how congressmen can't even have town halls anymore. Legislators don't even try because what's the point? You're just going to show up and be harassed by an organized group of people shouting you down and calling you names and not letting you talk and interrupting people who are there in good faith to actually engage with you as a constituent. You know, the, the people who actually came to do what the town hall is for, which is talk to their representative about issues, they don't matter at all to the people who are protesting. They've decided that they're going to displace the purpose of the event and make it all about them. And so the response to that has been, well, I guess we're not going to have town halls anymore. So we can't even engage with our elected officials, right? We got that going on. We, we, we see it in terms of, Black Lives Matter shutting down traffic. You can't even get to work. You can't even get to the hospital. We're going we're gonna, to we're gonna take over and shut down the conversation so that only our point of view is front and center. Only our point of view gets any attention because that's the only way they can win. They can't compete, and they know it, and that's why they're doing this. Let's talk, talk to Mike in Farmington. Welcome to the program. Good evening, Walter. Evening. Yeah, what came to mind there when you were talking about some of those things, I wonder if there's almost an inverse relationship, if you will, with the Internet and the left just losing their mind and lack of control because you can seek out your information and the Internet is great for that, but I don't think people want to participate in a platform that's only going to express one point of view, and we've seen that technique used. What came to mind immediately for me was how they weaponized the IRS, Obama yeah. and the like. I can't remember who was. The yeah, that was an, that was another way. That was the precursor to all this. Before they started coming after our social media accounts, the precursor to it was utilizing the IRS 
to actually prevent people from from organizing politically. Tea Party groups right here in the state of Minnesota were hampered from getting their tax exempt status as a nonprofit, and it was explicitly politically motivated. There was an interesting. Your colleagues had a, a gentleman on. I think they said he uh, Jeffrey Lee, maybe it was that he is a new guest there, and he, and he commented on some of this with. You know, with Trump, I mean, he just throws it out there, and I don't know, the left just, I don't think they can handle that because they're not used to that. And do you think Twitter will ban Donald Trump? I think they will. I think it's only a matter of time. I think it's coming. Wow. I mean, I could, I, you know, it, it's not beyond the realm of possibility. I guess it wouldn't surprise me. I don't think they would be doing themselves any favors, though, by doing that. You would, I think you would incite more of a rebellion and you'd solidify his base even more. I just, I think the more they criticize him, the tighter everybody clenches arms together. I think they're going to wait until 2020. I'm sure they've already talked about it. They've already strategized it as to when it would be the do the most damage to him and be the most effective to their cause. They're going to wait until 2020, until somewhere during the primary season or in the transition into the general election, and then they're just going to shut off the spigot. It's going to be, they're just going to ban them from all. They're going to do exactly what they did to Alex Jones. They're going to, in a coordinated fashion, all the different tech companies are going to deplatform the president of the United States. Isn't Jack Dorsey running Twitter? Yeah. But I've also heard that he has... He has to go under some, I guess, self-examination about how he wants to run his business. Now, I've heard some people say, well, it's his own private business, so he can limit and decide what kind of yes, content he wants. right, of course. But, but that doesn't make it okay. Push- Look, the, the, what we've been hearing, and there's a reason why I, I made the comparison to uh, same-sex marriage earlier, and I, I appreciate the call as always, Mike, is because that's an issue where the, you got this public accommodation argument that's constantly thrown out there, right? Um, I believe it was Laura Ingram recently who floated the notion that Facebook and Twitter ought to be nationalized to some degree in response to the deplatforming that's taking place. Now, I don't agree with her. I think that's a horrible idea, and I I think it's wrong both tactically and morally for conservatives to take up that type of a cause and say we should, you know, basically we're going to embrace socialism and utilize it for our own ends. That's not the way to fight socialism, right? That's not the way to fight the left to start doing what they do and advocating for what they do. However, I understand the sentiment, right? Because all it is, is it's, it's flipping the script on the left and saying, look, you're the ones who are constantly telling us that being engaged in business in the public sphere is a privilege that is allowed by the state. And that in order to engage, in order to offer a service to the public, it comes with the cost of not being able to discriminate against who your customers are going to be. Well, if indeed that's a thing, if that's a real principle that actually exists in moral reality, then it applies here. That's the underlying premise of Laura Ingram's argument. If you're going to say we can't discriminate in who our customers are, and as Facebook, your customer is anybody with an opinion who wants to connect with somebody else who shares that opinion, then you don't get to deplatform people. Now, legally, I don't agree with that, right? They have the right to decide who their customers are going to be. I just wish that that was universal, that we all got to decide who our customers were going to be. We all got to decide who what our relationships 
were going to look like, who they were going to be with, and on what terms. There's an under, that underlying principle of what a relationship is and the, the moral premise upon which it's governed, which is consent, is completely missing from the conversation right now. Let's talk to Chris in Minneapolis. Welcome to the program. Hey, how's it going? Let's go. Hey, I had a beer, so you have to bear with me. Um, uh, yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> just about, okay, I was calling in about being shut down by the left. Yeah. Because I called that Jamar show. Yeah. And talking to a dude, and actually he admit, admitted part of my call. I don't know how he air. did that. How and is that possible? Like, I don't know. With the delay or something. Just push a couple buttons like, on the board. Call, click. When I had him, I had him on the ropes. Oh, yeah? And, he, and yeah, and he, like, he didn't answer my question. He's, like, dancing around it. Oh, you want to wait for the, the breaks? I waited through that. He comes back, and he talks around it. Never answered my question. And, oh, thanks for your call. Click. So, you know, Chris, yeah, this is right the third time you've called and out. brought this up. Why don't you talk to Jamar about it? We're not <laughs> here to fight fights in this debacle. No, I don't want to. I don't want to fight. I'll just relaying what happened. No, I, I hear you, Chris. I appreciate the story for the third time. But yes, you know, th- look that that is an example of what we're talking about to a certain degree. That you you you're not. Th- there is no debate. In this moment, in this environment that we find ourselves in, debate is a missing phenomenon. Nobody is interested in it. Debate is predicated on the notion that we're going to compare ideas and weigh them on their merits. That's what a debate is. When's the last time you saw one on anything at all? 651-989-5855. Closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, com. Going down a bit of a rabbit hole here tonight with a deplatforming issue. During the break, tripped upon a big article over at Breitbart.com. Apparently, they have some video of Google's leadership that was dismayed in the aftermath of Donald Trump's election. We're going to discover it here together. Closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson, Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, 651-989-5855. A video recorded by Google shortly after the 2016 presidential election reveals an atmosphere of panic and dismay amongst the tech giant's leadership, coupled with the determination to thwart both the Trump agenda and the broader populist movement emerging around the globe. The video is a full recording of Google's first all-hands meeting following the 2016 election. These weekly meetings are known inside the company as TGIF, or Thank God It's Friday meetings. Sent to Breitbart News by an anonymous source, it features co-founders Larry Page and Sergey Breen, VPs Kent Walker and Eileen Naughton, CFO Ruth Porat, and CEO Sundar Pucci. It can be watched in full uh, on the embedded in the article here. It can and should be watched in full above in order to get a full context of the meeting and the statements made. It was reported earlier this week that Google tried to boost turnout amongst the Latino population to help Hillary Clinton, 
only to be dismayed as the usually solid Democratic voting bloc switched to the GOP in record numbers. This video shows a similar level of dismay amongst Google's most high-profile figures. These individuals who preside over a company with unrivaled influence over the flow of information can be seen disparaging the motivations of Trump voters and plotting ways to use their vast resources to thwart the Trump agenda. Co-founder Sergey Brin can be heard comparing Trump supporters to fascists and extremists. Brin argues that, like other extremists, Trump voters were motivated by boredom, which he says in the past led to fascism and communism. Oh, my God. The Google co-founder then asks his company to consider what it can do to ensure a better quality of governance and decision-making. By the way, just so you know, that right there is fascism. The, the intermingling of private companies with the process of governing is the Mussolini textbook definition of fascism. He's the guy who came up with the term and defined it, and that's what it is. Let's get the the corporations, the private entities, and the government together and have an oligarchy whereby the individual is subordinated to the state. That's what actual fascism is. And these guys, they're for it. Continuing at Breitbart, VP for Global Affairs Kent Walker argues that supporters of populist causes like the Trump campaign are motivated by fear, xenophobia, hatred, and a desire for answers that may or may not be there. Later, Walker says that Google should fight to ensure the populist movement, not just in the U.S., but around the world, is merely a blip and a hiccup and historical arc that bends toward progress. Now, the, the point we should be taking away from this is, Clearly, and and Google d- is not operating in a vacuum. Obviously, Facebook, Twitter, all these tech companies, they all are of the same mind. They all come out of the same culture. They're all proceeding under the same motivation. When when companies like Facebook, Twitter, Google, you know, the, the purveyors of and handlers of all of the information that we exchange online, when they come to the conclusion, following, by the way, an election, by voters expressing their political will. When they come to the conclusion that the results of that election are not acceptable and that they are now going to include as part of their corporate mission a concerted effort to change political reality, to change the culture, they cease to be providers of a health platforms, providers of search engines, providers of the means by which we can connect with each other, and they, they become political activists. Now, I'm not a big fan, personally, of, you know, I've, I've spoken out against campaign finance restrictions. I don't think we ought to have, you know, all these efforts to control, you know, who contributes to what and how people organize to express themselves politically. I think all that is quite obviously prima facie violations of the First Amendment. You ought to be able to support whoever you want to support, give them as much money as you want, utilize whatever resources you have to convey your thoughts, your beliefs, your arguments, your opinions, and to try to persuade other people that you're right. You ought ought to be able to do that. However, currently, today, under the status quo, we just talked about in the last segment, during the Tea Party years, how many organizations were thwarted by Obama's IRS in seeking their nonprofit status, the extent to which there there has been a concerted effort now culminating in this deplatforming phenomenon to try to silence conservative voices. That all takes place under the rubric 
of campaign fi- finance and you know right now the whole russian collusion narrative we need to control foreign influence in our elections we can't have people meddling with our democracy this is very clearly meddling in democracy Google, Facebook, Twitter, deciding who and who cannot have a platform based on their political views, having meetings where they're talking about how they're going to utilize their resources to influence the culture, to control whether or not a movement continues to exist, to direct the course of politics. If that's not campaign activity, I don't know what is. And so how is it being governed? Now, again... I don't think it ought to be, but if we're going to have this rubric under which we do control political organization, campaign activity, then it strikes me that Facebook and Twitter at this point officially qualify. 651-989-5855 will take your calls when we return. Closing argument. My name's Walter Hudson, Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, closing argument. My name's Walter Hudson. Streaming at TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com and your iHeartRadio app. We're here 9 to 11 weeknights. Appreciate you joining us. We've been talking about deplatforming. Brandon Straka, founder of the Walkaway Movement, a social media effort to provide testimonials and, and uh, basically support. It's basically like a giant social media support group for people who have walked away from liberalism, walked away from the Democratic Party. He's been banned from Facebook. He's been deplatformed from Facebook for having the temerity to mention the fact that he was interviewed by Alex Jones. And so that that news breaking today has uh, triggered a a trip down the rabbit hole of this phenomenon of deplatforming. And the effort by the political and cultural left to shut down their opposition, primarily because they lack the capacity to win arguments when they actually are presented uh, with a level playing field and have to address the premises and points offered by their opponents. They don't like that. They like to be the only people on the stage. And so they're using every possible means at their disposal, whether it be the government or private institutions such as these big tech corporations, to kick the legs out from underneath anybody who speaks a word against them. 651-989-5855, closing argument. Brad Omlin taking your calls, producing the show. Let's talk to Pat in Shoreview. Thanks for holding. Yeah, this whole thing was, um, I mean, I agree with you that, um, we can't try to regulate uh, our way out of social media. We simply have to create um, or go to alternative platforms that, that, that um, are for free speech. Mm-hmm. Um, for, but I don't understand what's going on there as far as, like, for example, DuckDuckGo is a search engine that's, that's the equivalent of Google, in my mind, if not better, as far as you know, the way it presents Trump, for example. Um, just doesn't get the play that, uh, or the traffic, anywhere near the traffic that Google does. Mm. I don't know if it's because it's the default on the phone or, or the browser, the Chrome browser, I'm not sure. But, um, and I don't think, but I don't think that, and the other thing I got, I got to disagree with you with, I don't think that Twitter is going to ban Trump because there are alternatives for Twitter too. And 
if Trump would move to that, and that platform would, you know, I don't know if it could scale up, but that would just be the best advertising. That's the worst thing, you know, Jack Dorsey could do was to ban Trump because well, he'd go to another platform. You, you make a solid point. Donald Trump is in a very unique position to be the catalyst for launching alternative social media platforms. I mean, wherever Trump goes, hundreds of millions of people are going to follow. And so it, in conjunction with the private developers and entrepreneurs who want to try to put something out there that's a true public square, a true open platform that doesn't discriminate based upon point of view, uh, Donald Trump could facilitate that if he was willing to in a pretty massive way. And the thing I think that he should do, I think he should leave Twitter and see if he could find another another platform. I watched Jack Dorsey testify to a, cert, to a certain extent, I saw some of it, on Congress, at Congress the last time, and he was confronted with various facts, like, well, um, he, he claimed initially, they asked him, oh, boy, I'm sorry for jumping around, they asked him, okay, uh, what's the story with you banning um, or shadow banning congressmen? Mm-hmm. And he kind of gave a, well, we, we don't know what happened there, but some Democrat Congress people got banned, too. Well, who were Yeah, right. Yeah, oh, right. Well, I'll have to get back to you on that. And, and basically, yeah. he was confronted a number of times with, mm-hmm. well, I'll have to get back to you on that. I don't know what the story is on that. And I just wanted to say, I wish some congressman would ask him and say to him, well, why do you think we called you up here? Yeah, right. We called you up here for this precise issue. You're completely unprepared, unless you're saying you don't know when, in fact, you do know. Uh-huh. which I think is what the case was. Well, so, that, I, I, I think w- one of the things that's been said, and I, I believe Dorsey has been one of the voices saying it, is that, oh, you know, this the this is all behavior-based. In fact, I know for a fact is one of the things he said in, in the midst of congressional testimony. You know, we're not banning people based upon points of view. We're banning people based upon the the conduct that they've engaged in and it's largely automated and it has to do with you know recognized algorithms of you know when people behave in a certain way the, it it raises red flags and then our process kicks in now they he didn't provide details as to how the whole process works but this is their narrative is that oh you know it's not really doesn't really have anything to do with point of view it has to do with behavior and we can't help it if people who have certain points of view happen to engage in those behaviors and it's complete well, bs yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's basically kind of um, it reminds me of like the disparate impacts that that the left used about. That's right. Um, That's right. <laughs> you, about, you know, against you know minorities, as far as saying mm-hmm. that you know sale of crack cocaine within. You yeah, know, right. Isn't it? Isn't it prima? It's prima facie with, evidence of discrimination when 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 one group is is affected more than another group, that's obviously discrimination. That's what the left tells us in every context where they can identify, as you say, a disparate impact. How does that not bear out here as well? Yeah. Um, I, I don't know. I guess the one thing I was thinking about, I mean, I thought I gave a lot of thought to the whole thing of, you know, we need, you know, for a long time, ABC, NBC, and CBS were, were the, the news channels, and that's where you got your news for the most part. Mm-hmm. And the conservatives and the Republicans always got upset, felt they got short shrift, et cetera, et cetera. And the only way you would get the, the, their side of the story was either through newsletters or yeah. like the National Journal or National Review. Yeah, right. And, um, and, um, so, and we, you know, there was Hammond and Haw and, and the Fairness Doctrine and on and on and on. Well, then Rush Limbaugh, 
reinvigorated Correct. AM radio. AM right. radio, they weren't even making cars with AM radio in them anymore. <laughs> right. And, and Rush Limbaugh reinvigorated right. a whole thing. He took yeah. the thing that was basically a dead medium mm-hmm. and turned it into, you know, what we're talking to now. Yeah, we're on the and, verge. We're on the verge of something like that happening again because the need is presenting itself. And, and, and just as with the Fairness Doctrine, I appreciate the call, Pat, just as with the Fairness Doctrine and the 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 throttling of discourse that that created, we're seeing a similar situation now. Now, the source is a little bit different. This is not coming from regulation. This is coming from corporate action. But the impulse and the motivation is the same, and that's to shut down and to control and to artificially regulate what ideas are acceptable in the public discourse. And it's, you know, it it's really telling. Again, I, you know, I just, I, I can't say this enough. It's extraordinarily telling when you have to take action to force people to hear your point of view and to value your point of view or to to try to present your point of view as having some sort of dominance, some sort of artificial dominance over the opposition by getting in the way of consensual relationships, by keeping people from being able to engage with each other on social media platforms or what have you. It really is a confession and a public expression of the stupidity and uselessness of your ideas. Because if, you, if your ideas actually had merit, you wouldn't have to use these tricks. You wouldn't have to have Friday night meetings, Google, to try to come up with ways to u- utilize your, your technical expertise to artificially compel people in the direction you think they ought to go politically. It would happen naturally because people would see the merit. But you know, it's, it's, it shouldn't surprise us that folks who don't believe in the market as such will not respect the results of the marketplace of ideas 651-989-5855 closing argument my name is walter Hudson. twin cities news talk am 1130 you know we talk frequently on the program about the necessity to speak in moral terms to talk about what's right and what's wrong and to articulate why and to stand on the side of right with a sense of indignation and immutability. And this is desperately needed. It's needed with our politicians. It's needed with our representatives, our elected leaders, but it's also needed with us out here in the real world, in our jobs, in our relationships, in our institutions. And I wish we saw more of it when you're dealing with businesses and and other institutions that are engaging with different levels of government and fighting back against initiatives which are going to hurt them i wish we saw more of the moral case for why certain ideas are wrong not a bad idea not bad policy but morally wrong morally incorrect Unfortunately, we're just not there yet. Closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, 651-989-5855, the number to join us for our last segment this evening. From the Star Tribune, students who work on campus at St. Paul's private colleges and universities could get a hefty raise if the city council passes a $15 minimum wage this year, but school leaders may make them pay more in tuition as a result. As the council and Mayor Melvin Carter craft a minimum wage ordinance 
which will almost certainly mandate a $15 hourly wage. The five private nonprofit colleges and universities in the capital city want more time to phase it in for work-study students. Depending on time of year, a total of up to 6,000 undergraduates may be employed part-time at Concordia University, Hamlin University, the University of St. Thomas, St. Catherine University, and McAllister College. Students employed in work-study jobs work about 7.5 hours a week and can earn an average wage of about $10.40 an hour, according to a recent report on the wage issue by the Citizens League. Colleges recognize the benefit that would accrue to student workers from an increase in the minimum wage, the five schools said in a joint statement included in the Citizen League report. However, the implications of an increase in the minimum wage in the context of work-study employment are complex. Now, I want to I pause and go over that statement again, because this, this is what I'm talking about. This is not a persuasive statement. This is a capitulation from the outset. Colleges recognize the benefit that would accrue to student workers from an increase in the minimum wage. Really? Do you? Do you recognize the benefit? If so, what's your complaint? Why would you stand in the way of progress if you recognize the benefit that a $15 an hour minimum wage is going to have to your students? Tell me more, right? This is not how you should be approaching the issue. This, look, here's the, here's the Walter Hudson version of the joint statement from all these colleges and universities in St. Paul. A $15 minimum wage is going to destroy the opportunities that young people need in order to advance their careers and education in St. Paul. It is a morally reprehensible idea that is going to deprive young people of the opportunities that they need in order to prepare themselves for life in the real world. Their capacity to pursue their own values, to pursue their own happiness, is going to be handicapped by Mayor Melvin Carter. Call him out by name. Call the guy out by name and say he is going to ruin young people's lives. He is going to handicap the potential of our students by pursuing this morally reprehensible policy, which is predicated on the notion that somebody wants to work. You know, here's the thing. We don't have a single person, and this is, again, me speaking in the voice of <laughs> these colleges and universities. We don't have a single work-study student who was forced at the point of a gun to accept $10.40 an hour. Not one of them. You won't find a single one who was like, you know what, I really don't want to work for that. And then we pointed a gun at their head and made them do it. Not one person fits that category. Each and every one of them made the decision that the exchange of value was mutually beneficial, that they were actually going to be better off as a result of accepting the job on these terms than they would, buy, would be if they didn't. And the result of artificially inflating that to $15 an hour is that, number one, we're going to have to raise tuition, which means fewer people potentially are going to have the opportunity to, to benefit from what we provide. So they're not even going to get an education in the first place. And number two, are the other way in which we're going to potentially have to mitigate this travesty that you're imposing upon us, Mayor Melvin Carter, is having less opportunities for students to engage in work study, less opportunities for them being able to get the skills that they need in order to further their education and prepare themselves for life in the real world. This is not okay. 
You do not get to do this, and we oppose you on moral grounds. We condemn the idea, and we will not accept it. That's how you talk about it. You don't come out of the gate with, well, you know, we, we can see the benefit of this. This could be beneficial, but, you know, maybe perhaps we should pause for a moment and consider the possibility that the issue is complex. Let's talk to Rob in Minneapolis. Welcome to the program. Hey, thanks for getting my call. I know we're short on time. What's funny about this is that I ha- I'm an employer, small business. I have employees. I hired two U of M college students who told me over the summer that last, um, last year they were making nine sixty five an hour and through the entire summer as tour guides at the U mm-hmm. because Minneapolis exempted um, <laughs> state, county, federal institutions, including school boards, right. from the minimum wage increases. Right. And they didn't know that. When they came to work for us making eleven twenty five an hour minimum wage, as a, mm. server, as a server waitress, they're going, wait a minute, wait, wait, I, I, I'm losing $2 an hour? Mm. Yeah. So I think this is interesting because the colleges you're referring to are private. They right. don't fit under the, the umbrella that Minneapolis used. Correct. And in the preliminary things I've seen for St. Paul, they're going to use most of the same criteria that Minneapolis is mm. and exempt school, you know, public schools, things like that. So it's interesting that now privates are being pulled into this mm. as if they've got to come up and match just like small employers and others got to. Right, and I just—it's it, it, amazing how it works. I mean, we're, we're at eleven twenty-five in Minneapolis. I still can't find bodies. I don't care if I yeah. pay fourteen or fifteen; there just are not bodies. Mm. And I don't know how raising the fifteen is going to solve the problem when there are no people to actually fill the position. Yeah, appreciate so, the call. Appreciate the thoughts, Rob, you. and uh, wish you the best of luck in in that unenviable position you find yourself in. Yeah, you know, it's look—it's it's real simple. Consent should rule the day. Mutual benefit should rule the day. Freedom, liberty should be the dominant considerations in public policy. What is morally right should prevail over what is morally wrong. It's not complex. It's not complicated. It's actually extraordinarily simple. If two people want to do it and it doesn't hurt somebody else, you don't get to stop them. That's the principle. And as applied to the to um, employment, as applied to wages, as applied to you know workplace regulations and such, that if we actually applied that principle, 80, 85, 90% of what's out there in terms of controls in the marketplace would disappear overnight. Because none of it, virtually none of it, is predicated on the idea of actually protecting a real right that truthfully exists. It's predicated on the notion that some third party, some entity, some person who was elected to a position or appointed or hired to a bureaucracy, that they know better than both the employer and the employee how their relationship ought to be defined and on what terms. The hubris in that, the arrogance.